0: The phone lines are open this hour. To be a part of the program, it is a free call. 1-855-450-NOAH. That's one 450 6624 Or send an email to live at asknoahshow.com. My name is Noah Chalai. I'm your host. Delighted to be here with you as another episode of the Ask Noah Show kicks off this hour. Gadget of the week this week is the Pi KVM. Now, you might remember a few weeks ago, we talked about a Raspberry Pi-based KVM. But this one was designed by a company that was called Tiny, K- uh, Tiny Pilot, excuse me, and um Tiny Pilot was designed by a company, and so you have to order it through them. Now, I have one of these devices on the way, and I think it's pretty cool, um, and I'm still going to play with it. Um, but Steve Ovens, who uh, lurks around in the community, uh, pointed me towards Pi KVM. The thing that I like about Pi KVM is, much like Tiny Pilot, it's a Raspberry Pi-based KVM. The difference here is that uh, this one is designed to be built inside of your basement. And so they provide the operating system. They have all the software, um, but you uh, build this device. They support the Raspberry Pi 2, 3, and 4, and Pi- Raspberry Pi 0. Uh, it supports full HD uh, using the their advanced HDMI to SCI. So I looked this up. It's essentially the Raspberry Pi version of a PCI uh, adapter that will allow you to take HDMI video in. And so they claim that that reduces the latency of the video by over 100 milliseconds now you remember that the time pilot is doing everything over usb so this seems like the way to go additionally to support bootable virtual cd-rom and flash drives obviously the keyboard and mouse with leds and wheels are supported and forwarded through to the remote ipkvm you have the ability to control the server or host computer uh, by using power and atx functions you access this through a web ui uh, or through vnc and you have the ability to use ipmi uh, uh, open BMC, wake on LAN to control the server. Um, so I and of course they have all of the SSL done for you, and they have health monitoring for the Pi. They claim that the cost is between thirty and a hundred dollars to get all the parts, and of course it's a hundred percent open source. So if you're if you're not following what we're talking about when we say an IP KVM, if you are doing support for your mother or your grandmother, and uh, you're in a different geographical location than she is, now obviously we can get screens you know remote screen share software to work that's obviously the way to go but oftentimes what ends up happening is you're not in the same geographical location and the part of the computer that is not working correctly um, is before you can get the software to load or the computer is so bad that you you can't get the software to load in some cases you need to reinstall the operating system entirely and in those cases no amount of remote support software is going to do the trick. You're going to have to get console level access to that computer. There have been solutions, the spider comes to mind, is what I'm most familiar with, that have existed from companies like Lantronics for years, but of course they're very expensive. And so as open source continue continued to take off and as integrating this hardware directly into the, the the Raspberry Pi has continued to take off, now these products are becoming available. Um, and so I've ordered the, there's a couple, there's a cable that you have to order and a couple other little uh, pieces. So uh, I've got those on the way. I'm going to give both of these a shot and I'll let you know what the end result is. But I I can't imagine we will continue to use the spider after this because the the thing about the spider is and it, again, it's a great product from Landtronics that I've I've been very happy with up until this point, but you know, at the end of the day it runs inside of this java applet that has to render inside of the browser. And IceT works pretty well, but it's still a pain to use. This is using all modern web components. And so it's just an HTML5 page that loads on a Raspberry Pi. And we. the other thing that's advantageous is again, Lantronics, is, I think it's a $400 device, $500 device. And so if we can put this together for 100 bucks, you might add a little bit onto that because we tend to put them in uh, nicer cases. Uh, flirt case and have a fan for some cooling especially with the Pi 4s, they get pretty warm. But this is the way to go. And this is the way to get console-level access to stuff remotely. I remember just a few years ago when we were having discussions, guys were building terminal servers out of Raspberry Pis and putting them in uh, connected to legacy hardware, things that you required, Telnet and stuff like that, to get in or had serial consoles. And they were tying those things to Raspberry Pis. It's great that now we can tie any computer so you can have remote control of literally any device, any operating system, because as long as it supports USB and HDMI, you're able to get that into to a Raspberry Pi, and then you're able to transfer that back, um, you know, to a remote location. Now, imagine this. We've talked a little bit about remote uh, remotely dot one, and um, obviously, you know, uh, since then, what I've learned is that the project doesn't have a lot of active maintainership. So we're continuing to experiment with it. And we're continuing to see where it goes and, and how it works. But it does it does cross my mind, right? We are we are at a place now where the technology exists, where if by where if you are an open, if you're a, a company that does PC support and you have techs that are in the field and you have techs that are probably very smart, but they live behind their computer because that's how people that are the best at fixing that stuff, that's the kind of lifestyle they want to live. So you have those two people and you're trying to get them connected with a customer. Um, I can absolutely see a very workable uh, flow whereby which these very smart people who are capable of solving problems but are always behind a keyboard, you can have a whole group of other people that can go out and get customers and or people that need that help and get them paired up with the right technical person because the Internet is broad and those people can, those experts in that individual field can be spread up any geographical area. Um, The power here is pretty tremendous, right? You could... uh, you could potentially get to a a point where somebody opens up a service ticket and says, you know, I have this problem. And that person, that ticket goes into the queue. And this person says, I know how to fix that. And they say, well, I need console level access for that. And so they respond in the ticket that they need console level access. And somebody that, you know, is just getting started in the field might go out there with one of these devices, plug it in. And that person joins the queue. And now the more experienced technician is able to immediately go from working on one project to the next. So, you know, when you start, trying to look at the practical implementation of these things. They're powerful on their own. IPKVM is a very powerful tool and we've used it uh, with great success for a number of years at AltaSpeed. But it's when you start to integrate those and tie those things together with other software projects. So whether it's a piece of software that's installed and I'm able to remotely access the machine, much like SimpleHelp, or it's one of these IPKVMs, either way, the workflow to the person on the back end is the same. And again, that modularity, and 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 that that form momentum of open source both on the hardware side and on the software side is what makes something like this possible. So if you want more information, I invite you to check out their GitHub github.com/pikvm. Um they also have a Discord community and uh, you can join them and and talk about it. They're talking they're saying that the prototypes they're going to build them and you'll actually be able to purchase if you don't want to build it yourself. Prototypes will be ready at Q4 2020 and pre-orders are going to be available sooner. So if you're considering ordering a wholesale lot then they give an email address. And so we may re- reach out to them. I think I'm going to start by building one and just kind of see what I think about it. And then if it works out, we'll go from there. Get open phones this hour, 855-450-NO. It's 855-450-6624. The email live at asknoahshow.com. That is the number to join, make your voice heard, Come a part of the program. So Amazon is officially announcing the, the general availability of bottle rocket an open source Linux distribution purpose built to run containers. Um, what Amazon is aiming for here is increased security primarily. But, you know, the other thing is they're just trying to make it easier and more efficient and more secure to be on AWS than anywhere else. Bottle Rocket, quote, improves security by including only the software needed to run containers, which reduced the security attack surface. It uses security enhanced Linux, also known as SE Linux, in enforcing mode to increase the isolation between containers and the host operating system. In addition to standard Linux kernel technologies, to implement isolation between containerized workloads such as control groups, also known as cgroups, namespaces, and C-comps. Uh Bottle Rocket uses Device Mappers Target DMVT, a Linux kernel feature that provides integrity checking to help prevent attackers from persisting threats on the OS, such as overwhelming, uh, excuse me, overriding core system software the modern linux kernel in bottle rocket includes ebpf which reduces the need for kernel modules and many low level system operations large parts of bottle rocket are written in rust a modular programming language that helps ensure thread safety and prevent memory related errors such as buffer overflows that can lead to security vulnerabilities now uh we are we have only recently started moving some of our stuff over to containers at altspeed i think our website runs on it and uh, obviously, I th- Matrix is running on it, but everything else is still running uh, on VMs. They're not running inside of containers, and so containers have become somewhat new to my daily life. Uh, been aware of them, and I know that they're they're useful at great scale, but. Um, it's it's only recently that in the smaller business world that they have started popping up, and so a tool like this, an operating system specifically designed around containers and designed to increase the security of containers, is very appealing to me. Particularly when I start digging into the to the guts of exactly what Amazon has done there, and and what some of these uh, technologies are and how it works. BPF, for example, I, I was uh, I went through the presentation that Amazon had on why they believe this is a Uh, this is a better way to handle um, network integration. And, And essentially the way it works is if you, if you imagine from the hardware standpoint, you have the actual ethernet card, the hardware from there, it's talking to the kernel from the kernel. It splits, it splits into typical system calls, which then has user mode applications on top of it. That's a typical flow. But at that split at the kernel, in addition to be in addition to system calls, you also have BPF helper calls. And then this, uh, connects directly to the kernel mode BPF applications. And so this gives those, those applications direct, more direct access, I guess I should say, um, to the actual hardware and kind of circumvents the typical user space way that these applications have to access the network interface. And the the thing is they've added a new program and process state model, um, which essentially makes more efficient use of the processor. Um, and this gives them so much better performance on the network that the study that they've actually done that, they, that Amazon cites to show how much better uh, BPF is, uh, is referencing the work with BPF that Netflix and Facebook has, uh, that have done. So Netflix gives some statistics here, 150,000 Amazon ET- EC2 server instances, 130 million subscribers, and 14 active BPF programs on every instance so far. So I mean, this is really cool, and and the the way that somebody has looked at this and said, okay, for 50 years we've had one way, one uh, one process model, and now all of a sudden uh, we're going to look and find a more efficient way to let these applications talk through the network. Um, for debugging, they have something called their admin container, and this is something that Bottle Rocket is using. Uh, Bottle Rocket's API. That can then tie into the AWS system manager or user data, and you can log in with SSH for advanced debugging and troubleshooting, stuff like that. The admin container, as they're calling it, is a Amazon Linux 2 container image and contains utilities for troubleshooting and debugging Bottle Rocket, which runs with elevated privileges. It also allows you to install a standard debugging tool such as Traceroute, Traceroute. s trace tcp dump the act of logging into an individual bottle rocket instance is intended to be an infrequent operation for advanced debugging or troubleshooting so they are trying to get to a place where these servers just do what they have to do and you basically say i want a server to do this thing and because the process of rolling out the thing is more or less decided and because it's all fairly standardized and runs inside of the standardized containerized environment they basically get the variables that they need to set up your specific instance, and then Amazon will take care of the rest. And the tech here, the tech in the story is very cool. Again, the more I read about, uh, about BPF and the more I learned about why Amazon is, is doing this, it's very, very cool. And there are some major advantages. And I, I shouldn't say Amazon is doing this with BPF because lots of open source and open standards bodies have pushed and continued to, to move the needle forward here. But if you have a container heavy lit workload, I'd be interested to hear a tale from the from the wild as these start to pop up. If you're running that and you say to yourself, hey, this would be a perfect solution for us, then I would like to hear from you. you to send me an email at uh, live at asknoahshow.com and I, I would like to hear how this works in a real world scenario. And you, you know, you just know there's going to be some cool stuff and some cool forks that come out of things like this because all of this work is being done out in the open. And this is the coolest part to me. The coolest part to me is not that Amazon built an a- an AWS specific distro for running containers on Amazon platforms. That's okay. It makes it easier and a little bit more approachable, but there's nothing terribly exciting. And let's be honest, all of these really cool integration features, they all rely on Amazon and Amazon's API and the integration with Amazon and AWS. And it's all structured from the standpoint that you're going to buy more services from Amazon and AWS. And I'm not a fan of cloud providers, and I'm not a fan of vendor lock-in. All of that said, one of the things that we almost always get the short end of the stick in the Linux world is on polish. The thing that we're trying to do usually works in Linux, but there's usually a shinier, prettier way to do it on Mac OS or Windows. And you, I can count numbers of examples of this throughout the week. In where something it's the web version or the whatever works fine, and then there's just a little extra polish if you're using one of those two magic operating systems. And this is a moment, or at least a moment, as I was reading through this article today, where this stuff is going to work flawlessly because Amazon writes the checks. That gets the kind of open source developer talent that it takes to build a purpose specific distro like this, and then flush out all of the bugs get it tied to all of the fancy things and then make it scalable, then make it easy, then produce material on how everybody can use this new thing that they've created and then promote it to make it a standard. And all of those things are happening now. And the code, the result of that is open code that's available on GitHub. Amazon is developing this stuff out in the open because you told them that that matters now and they don't have a choice but to listen to you. You can be a company worth billions and you still have to create an account on GitHub and you still have to publish your code there the way that every other FOSS developer does because that's the right way to write code. That's how we know it's secure. That's how we know it's reliable. That's how we know that we can take that thing and use it somewhere else. And this is a moment where I think FOSS is standing on its own two legs, and this is a a major company that would rather put the source out on the Internet so that anyone can build this because the tech culture has evolved to the point now where we have told them this is what is expected in the professional corporate world. You want to build technology that lasts? It better be open. And now... Thanks to Amazon putting this amount of money and this amount of time and this amount of work, anyone can build a ba- better AWS if such a time comes that we need to build a bit better AWS. I remember the first time that I learned that FreeNAS could speak S3 and that now you could set up a FreeNAS box that could deliver the same backend type of storage that Amazon, uh, you would get with Amazon with AWS. And I start thinking to myself what the, ram- what the real world ramifications of framing open source in that way is. I was reading this week a interview with the founder of Back, Black, Backblaze. Excuse me. He started the company and he went live on day one with two servers and a bunch of USB hard drives plugged into two small Dell towers. And if you're thinking to yourself as a person who has used a, a machine with a bunch of USB anything on it, that sounds like a disaster waiting to happen. It was a disaster waiting to happen and it didn't take long. It took about one hour. And the next version, version one of their now famous storage pod, which is their server servers built specifically for the purpose of just maxing out the amount of drives that you can put it putting in this chassis in a in a top down enclosure, they built it out of plywood. Or I think it was his friend, built it out of plywood in their garage. Because they didn't have access to a metal shop. So they built it out of wood in his garage, put the hard drives in it, and took it back to their business and put it online because that's what they had to do. And it's that it's that real-world bite that I hear from other business owners and their voice, and I can, I can feel it. I can smell it because I've been there, and it furthers my belief that all success in business is really just piles of failure that you stand on top of, and I've said that many times on the show, but this story speaks to me. And this story is exciting to me because anybody that's been in business can relate to this. Anybody that has been in business can relate to the concept of you have an idea, you know, you just know that Dell can't possibly charge that much money for a server. And there has to be a way that you can undercut them and get you can do a better job for less money, less overhead with less complication. And it might not be as redundant. It might not be as Cool and fancy and have all the branding and all of that, but you can get the job done and you understand that. And so you set out to do that thing and he knew what he was doing. He researched the specs for USB and it was supposed to support a hundred and some drives, but it fell apart after five drives because what he learned was that you don't know what you don't know. And you just pray that you learn those lessons before it's a big job and it's something big enough to take you out. And, and I, I've told everybody that we've ever hired at AltaSpeed that the most important thing that they can offer the, the company and me specifically is a second insight. Give me some insight that I didn't previously have. Help me understand something from a perspective that I didn't previously have. Help me learn lessons through your experiences and then help me let you learn lessons through the experiences and knowledge that I have. That was the old saying the, he with understanding is imparted with knowledge, right? And that tends to be popular in the small business world. If you go and talk with other people out there that either work in small business or, or, or own small business, most people want to want to chat and, 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 and just want to talk about what lessons they've learned and what thing works. And I.T. guys are the same way. We want to share that knowledge. That's a it's a natural way for because we get excited about the tech. We don't really care about how the people above us make them make turn that into money. And so but but the corporate people, it's it's always about corporate secrets. We can't share that because that it's corporate secrets. This is our this is our these are our secrets and everything has to be encrypted and it has to be hidden away and it has to be private and proprietary. And we have to we have to write big, huge deals with other companies and those kinds of things. The model here is what is exciting, not that Amazon is writing a a, a platform for AWS. Now it's Amazon's budget to maintain this operating system. Now it's Amazon's budget to deal with the quality assurance and the timeline and the project management and the developers and all of the other things that go along with doing a really good job on a project and making a project so good and so production ready that anybody can deploy it inside of their business. Whether you're working for Speed Technologies, a tiny little company in Grand Forks, North Dakota, or you're working for Microsoft and you just need to or Netflix and you need to store your data so that you can stream content to 150 million people. Either way, you're going to use open source technology to do it. And now Amazon is going to pay to build that open source technology, and they're doing it out in the open. The lar- one of the largest shopping businesses to ever exist in the history of man just created a new Linux distribution. That code is available to everybody with an Internet connection and a GitHub account because of what open source has been pushing for for the last 10 years. Longer than that, really. So I'm super happy about that story case that wasn't clear hate to be unclear it's no secret that the world that we live in today internet is becoming uh prolific uh, one of the one of the um i don't know shale- sales shticks that i use is when i sit down with hotel operators or when i sit down with people in their business i tell them today in 2020 the internet's like hot water so whereas a few years ago you wouldn't have thought about when when the plumber tells you you know you got to upgrade your hot water heater because you want to provide hot water to each one of these rooms that's uh, that's, you know, that's a, it's an expense, yes, but it's people expect hot water when they stay in a hotel. Same thing with Internet today. People, when they go into a restaurant, when they go into a hotel, they expect Internet. And I recently have been relying almost exclusively on Matrix. And for most of us, we're keenly aware anytime we're, quote unquote, disconnected or out of contact. And it turns out the U.S. military is suffering from being out of real-time contact, uh, and they're looking to fix that by building a network in space. Hey, you heard that right. And they're doing this the open source style. And uh, Again, this, what, what the thing that speaks to me in the story is the fact that the way that they're going about this. So on Monday, the Space Development Agency announced new contracts to Lockheed Martin and York Space Systems for the development of space vehicles that would operate in the transport layer around the Earth. This language obfuscates what is actually a pretty big deal in how the U.S. military plans to communicate and control its weapon systems in the coming decades. With new contracts, these two Colorado-based companies will each build 10 relatively small satellites, likely on the order of 100 to 200 kilograms. Each will be launched no later than September of 2022, and they'll essentially be test satellites for what will eventually grow into a constellation of what the article says is 700 satellites at roughly one kilometer above the Earth's surface. So mind you, in the past, the way that this has happened before is... Somebody is going to send a, a satellite up into space, and of course that's an expensive proposition, so everybody and their brother says, well, if we're sending one up to space, here's what I want to put on it, and I need a camera, and I need this sensor, and I need that sensor, and I need this thing, and I need that feature, and I need this radio. And the the the, the thing that is different this time around is instead of these large, very multipurpose satellites, they're finding that it's more cost-effective and it's more efficient to have satellites that have lesser purposes or even a single purpose, and then just cycle them out when they fall when they, when they become damaged or they stop functioning or whatever. Um, the article goes on to say, effectively, this will allow for a global network, which military can track the movement of ground-based objects, as well as missile threats, relay this information to battle management layer. And that will provide automatic space-based command and control decisions to validate targets and relay this targeting data to weapon systems, presumably on the ground. Currently, the military does not have the capability to do tactical low-latency communication and targeting beyond line of sight. They said that the Space Development Agency Director Derek Turner will, uh, during a call with reporters by 2024, he said that the agency hopes to have deployed more than 100 transport satellites to begin offering initial warfighting capability that will allow for this. Okay, so I'm going to leave the whole warfighting thing out. Somebody else can take that discussion. Here's what's interesting to me. Okay, so the... So you have the military and they're moving away from these large expensive jack-of-all-trade satellites and the new plan, the military plans to deploy these smaller satellites with fewer functions that have more redundancy. And I I, I guess that the, the first thing that stands out to me is this is literally the Linux and open source model way of doing things, right? You go and they specifically reference in the article that they are looking to move towards smaller, more off-the-shelf type components. If you think about it, that's all you're doing is saying that there's somebody out there that makes the best. I, you know, I'm just going to make up a part on board camera diagnostic thermal sensor. You know, the little thing that that takes the temperature of, of some non-critical component. I'm sure there's a bunch of manufacturers that make that thing and the community at large, particularly the makerspace, has gone through and figured out here are the manufacturers that make these particular components. now, um, the space agency can go, I go out and just say, "Hey, we can just use these off-the-shelf components, and they've already been vetted. They've already been tested. and We'll see how they work. Do some additional testing to make sure that they're going to work in space." But this is the open source again, the open source way of doing things. Once that's discovered, and particularly their relationship um, with this uh, newer, smaller company, York Space Systems. For those of you that are that don't follow um, NASA and and the military's contract, Lockheed Martin has gotten contracts with the U S military for years. And so York space systems by comparison is very small and the United States is taking a chance with them and hoping that this is going to work out and that, that there are other players in the game that they can start working with. So uh, everybody is uh, apparently including the United States and the military is going this, this route and that, it, by the same token, that things that were born in the home lab often make their way into the enterprise because the geek who played with it in his home lab is the guy who figures out what works well in production. At the same time, you uh, you're you're going to have that same kind of thing happening at with your tax dollars now because governments are getting hip to this. Um, the uh, I, I guess there are some people in the uh, the mumble channel that are saying they're having some some problems that's uh i think i just uh, accidentally moved channels there so i apologize you can join us in our in the mumble room or you can join us in the the jitsy room uh just join our matrix instance uh, at uh matrix.linuxdelta.com you can connect and in, inside of Noah's booth we've got a Jitsi room and they uh, they hang out and uh participate in the chat room that's one way to make your voice heard otherwise you can call us at 855-450-NOAH that's 855-450-6624 the email live at asknoahshow.com whatever the worldwide community has to offer uh, that's now up for grabs. And that's what this program is doing is when somebody comes up with a different way to do something, even when it's in space, um, these are things that are, that are now going to be considered. And so, uh, congratulations to the space agency, uh, for their, their step towards a future space network. It will be exceptionally interesting to watch, uh, how we build a network a communication network in space and then the other thing And i was talking to my wife about this before i came to the studio today it's going to be exciting to see how the, in what form this technology trickles down to the rest of us um you know obviously i'm sure war fighting space communication systems are not going to be you know open for general use but over time uh, as this network becomes uh, you know a larger reality and more things get moved onto it I would imagine there's all sorts of opportunities for interconnection and the ability for people to use regular people, non-military people for non-warfighting reasons, uh, to be able to use a satellite network that connects everybody. So it'll be cool to see that. Speaking of getting connected to everybody, Linux Fest 2015, I want to take you back. It was a red-eye flight when I was coming in for Linux Fest. I usually fly in uh, a few days early to hang out with Chris and, and kind of hang up. And so I'm trying to stay awake on this flight. And it's a it's a long flight because, you know, start in North Dakota, you got to go the wrong way east to get to Minneapolis, the air hub, before I can start going actually west to get to SeaTac. So I'm on this four and a half hour flight. I'm on the IRC in the in-flight Wi-Fi, and I start talking to some people in various chat rooms, and I bump into a guy named Adram. I start talking to him. He's a pretty cool guy. And so we're having a conversation. And uh, all of a sudden I land, so I tell him, hey, I'm going to have to um, be off for a while because I got to go do the dance. And so I land, shuttle to the rental car place, get the rental car, drive to the hotel, check in, put my bags away, get my laptop back out, log back into IRC. Now we're at like three in the morning, right? There's a drum. We pick up where we left off a few hours ago. So it's 3 a.m. And I find out he's staying in the same hotel because this is, it's close to where the fest is. And he's hanging out in the lobby. So. I think to myself, well, it's time to get dressed and go back and meet this guy, I want to hang out. So I go back down. We end up hanging out the rest of the night. And I go up back up and crash at like five or six, sleep for a few hours and then get up and start doing Linux Fest Northwest. And I have hung out with him every single year since then, until last year, when I later found out that he had a change in his job and wasn't able to attend Linux Fest Northwest. The problem is, you know, we were connected at one time on IRC. I'm sure there were a couple of other communication platforms in between there. But over time, you know, people move around. So we go from Viber to Telegram to WhatsApp to Facebook to iMessage, text message, Discord. I just you can't keep them all straight. And so ever since self, I've been kind of trying to live over on Matrix. And the thing about Matrix for me is I'm, I'm so sick of moving from one platform to another seems like every time I get everybody caught up in my life, all of a sudden we all jump and go to a different platform. And uh, there are still people that are stuck on IRC and it's a fantastic messaging protocol, no doubt. But the reality is, even though you can work around this in 2020 at its core, it's just not built for security and federation the way that Matrix is. And so here I am living on matrix and slowly bringing all of my friends and family over there. And uh, what I'm noticing is that the bridging functionality of matrix, if it did nothing more, if all synapse did was give me a client that I could bridge other chats to, that would be enough in life. And you know, whether you're, you're if you're if you if you work at Altaspeed, you're just a Matrix chat to me. If you're an SMS message, you're just a Matrix room to me. If you're an email, you're just a Matrix room to me. If you're a Telegram group, you're just a Matrix room to me. Like everything shows up the same and works the same, and I've been enjoying that so much that uh, I, I it's to me it's worth overlooking what sets Ma- Matrix apart from other messengers, um, that ability to bridge, even though it may not be as user friendly as some other messengers. So lo and behold uh adrian my old friend shows up natively on matrix so we connect we start talking and i click on his user and i find out that his user is hosted on our linux delta server which you can sign up for account at riot.linuxdelta.com so he didn't know this but earlier that day we were doing some upgrades to the server because the increased user load that we're seeing has caused the server to slow down a bit and so i reach out to my team and i said you know what are we doing about this and they said well one of the cool things about Matrix is that the Synapse server has essentially Python programs called workers, and these Synapse workers are what actually process each message, encrypt, decrypt, forward on, you know, all of that. And so, what's happening is the server is getting slow because the, this worker is is now maxing out the the cores available on the server. They said okay so we can upgrade the the server then we have more cores and it just works and I said no essentially we can spin up additional matrix uh excuse me synapse workers and then they can process additional messages and as that user load has increased and as I have watched how how seamlessly and flawlessly it has become to upgrade the scale of the server it is clear to me that this is a protocol and this is a messaging system that's designed from the ground up to be scalable. Did some more digging, did a little bit more reading because I wanted to understand exactly what kind of server specifications are, are used in production in real world environments. Come to find out that the French government has standardized on the Matrix protocol and they have 300,000 users that are communicating using the matrix protocol and they've actually released the software that they're using as obviously they're they're not using element and, and synapse they have their own um their own implementation but they've released that as open source and you can go download it and use it and so again i say to myself this is incredible the matrix folks have a specific um container Docker container that spins up as that and has the ability to move the media content, which is the place where user, uh, I guess, media is uploaded to onto an AWS instance and has set of the Synapse server itself, because it's one of the cheapest places to store stuff. And so at AltaSpeed, we've been able to set up a user flow by where which the user logs into the next cloud interface and the element chat is actually presented to them because it's embedded into that next cloud uh, environment. And so they only have to log into one place. That chat is just there presented to them. And at every turn, it's just clear to me that Matthew and his team got it right. They got it right, and they get it when it comes to messaging. They understand how this stuff works. And if Matrix isn't for you, that's fine, because it can literally bridge to almost anything. But the way they have approached this is from the standpoint of standardization. The Matrix protocol imposes very little restrictions on, on a lot of things, even to include authentication. Uh, they leave a lot of that open, and the idea is so that anybody can host a Synapse Home server just like you host an email server, and anybody can have an account on there, and anybody can exchange messages. And at this point, I have most of my families and friends testing uh, uh, on on Matrix, and we're testing it at all speed for full deployment, and, and and as I continue down this journey with Matrix, all anyone has to do, all anyone ever has to do is continue to keep the client up to date. And if they've chosen to park their account on a reliable home server, then they're going to stay in contact with everybody on the Matrix universe. And so as I sat there looking at my friend Adram's account that's hosted on Linux Delta, I thought, you know, it's great because earlier today, when we took the time to increase the server capacity to make sure that the people that are parked there have a good experience, I'm ensuring my own continued contact uh, with a close friend of mine and that will be true going forward. And so I you know what I've taken the red pill. I've gone down the the matrix rabbit hole and I love it not because it's the most user intuitive uh, thing to use but because it's built for it's built for scaling, it's built to be self-hosted, it's encrypted by default. They allow you to manage those keys so so that they're secure and that creates a couple extra hoops to jump through. But at least I trust it. And at least I don't have to worry about information getting out. Um, And don't get me wrong, I don't want to overstate it. Signing up isn't that difficult. I mean, you're essentially choosing your password and a recovery phrase to protect your private key. But there's a dialogue to specify which home server you want to connect to. And so if you're not connecting to matrix.org, the default one, then you need to specify that. Ours is matrix.linuxdalta.com. There's some others in the open source community that are hosting them. It's not complicated, but it can be confusing, particularly if you're a click and run kind of person. Download the app and, and open it up. And so um, I thought I would just take a couple of minutes and say, uh, first of all, thanks to all of those that have come and hung out in, in the Matrix instance. If you want to sign up for, there's a web interface, you can, you can join at riot.linuxdelta.com. The server itself is matrix.linuxdelta.com. So if you download Element yourself, of course, you can register over an account just by doing that. And Eric, the IT guy has written a guide for front page Linux that literally walks you through this step by step. And so if when I said it sounded complicated or a little bit confusing, if that's you and you're saying to yourself, man, I, I would love to play with this. I just I don't have the time or energy to set this up. Come over to, come over to front page Linux. Check out the guide. We'll have it link for you at podcast.asknoahshow.com. And you can go on to the, the web interface of, of, um, of our Matrix instance, sign yourself up for an account. And we have the Geek Lab, which is bridged to all of the places right now. Um, if, you're, if you're existing in the Telegram group, then you're part of the same discussion. Um, we're hoping to get that tied into the on-air uh, uh, chat room and so that everybody can participate in all one place. And then for the more Fireside-style chat, um, we've got Noah's booth where I and a few other cohorts just kind of hang out all day and talk tech and talk about what we're doing. Uh, The phrase good morning has recently been banned. Uh, But yeah, come check out Matrix. It's a better way to message. It was designed to be like email. And so you can set up your own home server. I did it just so that I could walk through the process of setting up a home server. Uh, It was literally as simple as installing a single package and making the firewall adjustment. And then I was able to connect. And if you want to enable registration, that's one config change. If you want to enable federation, in other words, the ability to send messages to any Matrix server, that's where it, it, it takes a few more steps. But we've done all of that for you. Matrix.LinuxDelta.com. So you can sign up and chat with us, interact with us there. Feedback. Our first email tonight... Uh, So I'm late to listening this week's episode, but I just heard the guy call in about not getting internet from his bridge on his VMs. I'm curious if he's running Docker. I have a home server with an R710 with LibVirt and VMs and multiple network bridges. I had a lot of weird issues when I decided to install Docker on the host Ubuntu 18.04. It killed all my VMs. After some troubleshooting, it came back to the fact that the Docker install changes the default firewall policy for forwarding to deny by default. Swap it back, make a specific allow rules, and got me up and running. Sounds like a possibility for that caller. So yeah, he may want to check out what his forwarding policy is on his host firewall. Brett, hey, thanks Brett for for uh, for writing into the program. It's interesting. I had uh, had another issue with the firewall where it was preventing uh, virt manager from connecting to the spice interface. And so um, if 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 inside of libvirtd you don't have the option for for the listening interface to be all interfaces, it will uh, it will not connect, and uh, the firewall blocks it. And so we we made a firewall rule and changed that to listen to all connections, and that fixed that issue. So if you're having issues with VMs uh, and, and network bridges, definitely uh, take a look at uh, at your firewall rules, and particularly true if you're running any of those in in Docker or containers. Our second email, uh, I have set up a new Ubuntu server with 64 gigs of RAM and a 15 terabyte in LVM, but I thought I should have set up the drives in ZFS. I've talked myself into redoing the setup with ZFS, but should I go with Freeness and run a VM with Ubuntu to install the Docker images I need? I want to have a file server, Plex, Unify, and a Windows 10 VM for when I need to VPN into work. What or how would you set this up? I do have a couple of raspberry Pis, but I dislike running anything to control my network or entertainment, Jonathan. Um, so first of all, I want to commend you for not wanting to run anything to control your network or entertainment It's one of the primary reasons I stay away from the unified platform for routers is, um, they don't offer you a lot of local control. And if that appliance goes down, you're, you're in, you're in a lot of trouble. Um, so as far as h- how to set this up, first of all, I, I guess we'll start with this, um, If I was going to go the ZFS route, I would just use ZFS on your Ubuntu server. I don't really see any value in setting up FreeNAS in this particular instance. If you told me that you were primarily concerned about storing files and longevity and wanted to expand your file system and have that running, you're going to set up a dedicated file server, I would decidedly go the FreeNAS route. But when you say you want to have a file server Plex, unify in a Windows 10 VM, then what I'm hearing is what you want is a virtual host. And then uh, aside, one of the things that you want to virtualize maybe is your file server, or maybe you'll, your file server will grow to the point that it will become its own dedicated device. In any event, uh, what I would do is I would set Ubuntu up. If it's already set up with LVM, it's probably fine. Um, you're watching for smart status and you're watching for drives to give you an indication of, of, uh, of any issue, but LVM um like ZFS to a degree allows you to migrate data on or off a drive. And so uh, swapping a drive inside of an LVM setup is, is, is not a bad way to go. And indeed, there's plenty of production servers that run that way. Um, if you decide to go the ZFS route, though, I would I would I would go with open ZFS just in Ubuntu itself. And um, and then I would still use Libbert D for the for the uh, virtual virtualization software. And um, and then I would just run your Plex and Unify and Windows Ten VM all as guests for uh, on on top of your host. Now, when it comes to the file server, you could you you could actually f- virtualize FreeNAS. A lot of people out there say that you can't virtualize FreeNAS. It's not true. You can. Um, you just have to you just have to do a little bit of tweaking. And essentially, what happens when you virtualize FreeNAS is that FreeNAS expects direct access to the disks. And so when, when ZFS asks for a flush and it wants to flush the cast and actually tell it, now I need you to write to disks and I need you to do that now, um, ZFS expects that it's not going to be lied to. And if the hypervisor lies, then that's where you run into some issues with, with ZFS data. And so IX Systems has actually done a fantastic job bringing this up and, and, and going through exactly how to properly virtualize Freeness. And so my suggestion to you uh, would be to review their article. I'll have it link for you in the show notes at podcast.asnoashow.com. Our 3 to email tonight. Hi, hey Noah, I recently bit the bullet and purchased an RTL SDR starter kit from Amazon with a dipole antenna and various mounts. I received the kit and was able to get it up and running in Linux at a basic level, pulling in FM radio and even some local flight information. I'm completely new to the world of software-defined radio, and I don't really have any idea what I'm doing. Do you have any starter guides, applications, or general recommendations that you can share? Things that you wish you knew when you were getting started. Would love to get your input. Thanks. Love the show. Great. Um, so I have uh, a couple of links I'm going to share with you. The first is rtl-sdr.com, and they actually have a a, a Linux distro uh, with SDR software support built in. Um, the, the project is called... Um, s gorziers not gores do not RTL SDR uh, and um, so I'll have both of those linked for you in the show notes and, and you can check those out I've I've only played with SDR myself to a limited degree um, I've gotten more into packet radio and and sending information that way the thing that is exciting about SDR and why I encourage anybody out there that if you've not played with it or if not looked into it, what's 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 cool about it is everything that is broadcast in the world is broadcast on some frequency, and up until very recently, you had to buy a specific hardware device uh, to receive that frequency. Uh, recently now, and and they've been very expensive; they're thousands of dollars sometimes. Uh, r- more recently though, these receivers for those specific frequencies have come down in price, and so now you can purchase these device devices that are able to. Receive a, a a wide range of, of of frequencies, and they're all programmed right from your computer. And so the device actually does the receiving, but all of the audio is decoded and processed into your computer. And this opens up some additional advantages. Uh, I uh, oftentimes I. I hear people talk about ham radio as if it's this outdated hobby that is people sitting with tubes and radios in their room and sending Morse code to each other uh, in the middle of the night. And that's that's not what the hobby is about. And I I think this email is a great way to illustrate that software defined radio and some of the things that are happening with uh, with digital radio are allowing people to communicate in entirely new ways. And again, much true to the same things that we value in open source. They're not looking for any sort of central infrastructure. Um, When you're using your software-defined radio, you're able to pick up a direct radio communication, a direct radio transmission from somebody else, even if that person is using SDR. And um, this is an empowering part of ham radio, and this is where the hobby is really kind of on the bleeding edge. People are using this technology to provide internet in places that previously didn't have internet, um, to get camera feeds and audio feeds to places that didn't previously have at those lines of communication. And so, uh, you know, and I've had the opportunity to see these pretty much at any Linux Fest you go to, there is some carve-out of the ham radio operators, and they're sitting there doing their thing or demonstrating something. That certainly was the case um, back at scale this year. And so to watch some of these projects that have come out now uh, that are based on software-defined radio or based on digital radio technology is uh, is really exciting. And then uh, last, this I threw in here at the last minute, Dave writes in and asks if we have any tips for people who are uh, sending their kids back to school and um, uh, wrote a very nice email talking about how his daughter's going back to school and any of the concerns that I've had or, or how I've addressed them. And so it's 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 interesting. We, my wife and I had this discussion with our kids They came home from the first day of school. And um, they had a, a a notice, a thing that we had to sign. We didn't have to, but we opted to sign up for insurance. And the insurance was twenty dollars per kid, and for their school issued devices. Now, third grade and up is getting Chromebooks. Second grade be- or um, excuse me, second grade below is uh our, their uh, their tablets. And so we decided that We started having this talk with our kids, um, and and about you know appropriate ways to explore technology. And obviously, the school was not an appropriate place to explore technology and school technology is an appropriate place to explore that. And my son shared a story um, that he some of the kids that he went to school with over the summer during covid when they had their school devices at home were not aware that their teachers got uh, notifications every time they went to YouTube and streamed a video. And so their class got a good laugh out of some of the videos that these kids had watched um, and that was, you know, documented by the school. And this led to a fairly large discussion at our house about responsible use of technology and the the privacy that comes with this stuff, because the reality is that there is a number of different software platforms that are out there specifically to help uh, teachers keep tabs on what kids are doing on these electronic devices. And that's fine. Anytime you're in a classroom setting or doing your schoolwork. It's not so fine when there are reports of this happening outside of school hours and this is problematic. Now, I want to be clear, this is not happening in grand force. I have no firsthand experience with that. I've simply seen the lawsuits that have that have arisen from it. But if you're asking me how I how I approach that situation or how I dealt with that in our house, um, we sat our kids down and told them everything you do today from the papers that you write to the pictures you take are are potentially going to be with you. Uh, for a very long time, if not forever, particularly in in our school district, they're using G Suite. And so Google has no real reason or real motivation to ever get rid of any of that work. The chances of that, at least in the form of data analytics not existing for a very long time, are slim to none. Then on top of that, you have a number of different people who may or may not always understand the ramifications of technology. And and this was not this year, this was past year. One of our kids' teachers were, were you know, um we're taking pictures and tweeting them from their classroom. And I'm sure many parents find that to be uh, really great that they have an opportunity to go explore their kids' learning and and what's happening. But I think a lot of them don't always understand the dark side that comes with that and and the and the people that 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 use those kinds of platforms um, to do bad things. And so neither of our kids really had any idea about it. And I think the entire time we were having the discussion, both my wife and I were asking ourselves in our heads, like, are they old enough to have this conversation? I mean, is this something we have to do? And while it's an uncomfortable moment, it's an uncomfortable idea, and it's an uncomfortable discussion to have, the truth is that this is, uh, this is important. And as our kids are, are, they're going back to school now, at least for the time being, but as we kind of watch news unfold in this country, a town just seven miles away uh, has their entire kindergarten class in quarantine right now. And so all of these kids um, are experiencing life through a computer. And as adults and as citizens of a community that exists to welcome other people and support other people who uh, either work or live behind a computer, then those kids become our responsibility and what they do online and 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 how they experience the internet becomes our responsibility, particularly as parents. Um, and so, I, I appreciate you writing in, and I appreciate the, the you know the the kind words. Um, what I would tell you, or what I would encourage you, is that anybody that has a concern, um, just start, just treat it like public space. And this is what my wife and I told our kids. Treat it like public space. If you uh, went out into a mall and you were sitting down in a mall and having a discussion with your teacher or your friends, um, the way that you would dress, the way that you would act, the things that you would say, the things that you would draw, the attention that you would give, those kinds of things, just do all of those things anytime you're doing something on your school. And I guess if I was to if I was to extend that out a little bit, school or work issued computer. And just be aware of the stuff that you're putting online and, and what you're uh, and, and, and the way that you're interacting with those communities. Um, it's scary that the information that is put on those devices, the length of time that those things are going to live uh, in 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 uh, in perpetuity. Hey, if you didn't get a chance, we invite you to go to podcast.asknoahshow.com. That is the place that we keep all of the links, um, the stuff that we didn't get to throughout the hour. Um, tons of links in there. Today, uh, the the interview that I referenced on Blackblaze didn't we didn't touch on the on 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 the story and and their and their storage pods, but the the original interview is there. And so, if you want to go back and read that, uh, we invite you to do so. Uh, additionally, uh, again, I'd like to make a, a a plea to join us on the Matrix instance and and come and hang out. It's a fun place for for people to hang out, and uh, we have some people that join us there during the show and hang out with us uh, as we record each Tuesday. At 6 p.m., you're welcome to do that. The music means we're out of time. You can follow us, get the latest by following us on Twitter at AskNoahShow. You can follow me personally at Kirtle Linux. The Ask Noah Show continues next Tuesday at 6 p.m. Central. A huge thanks to Ben, our producer, Sarah, our call screener. This hour of the show may be more, but there's plenty more content for you at AskNoahShow.com.